Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be going over a nice little spreadsheet that that I created quite a while ago, and this is called Calvinism, Gnosticism, Augustinianism, and Platonism. This is a spreadsheet which compares and contrasts four different views uh, against an er a big array of issues. And so it's a nice matrices that I put together. And so when people say, how is Calvinism like Gnosticism? I could say, look at this spreadsheet. It's been very convenient for that, for a quick survey of the differences and similarities between these views. Of course, Gnosticism is an all-encompassing view, encompassing various sects of Gnosticism. And so we can only speak in generalities. But for the most part, I quote directly Calvin, Augustine and Platonists, such as Plotinus, in in this spreadsheet. So let's take a look at it. I got various questions: Who is God? How does God create? How does the material world relate to the spiritual? What is revelation? How does one become saved? Who is saved? What is evil? The source of evil acts, predestination, and the nature of man. Platonism we should be very familiar with if you have listened to any of my talks on Platonism. Who is God? The one. And so how this is set up is I have a little short description here. And then if you scroll down, you could actually read read the description of, of uh, evidence for this claim. Who is the one? And remember Aristotle, when he's talking about Plato, he says, Plato taught the one. In Platonism, the one is taught. Plotinus teaches the one. Plotinus says, uh, once you uh, utter... Uh, the good utter, give no other thoughts. You, you can't speak intelligibly of this being. And here, here, I actually got it quoted. Once you have uttered the good, add no further thought by any addition and any proportion to that addition, you introduce a deficiency. Do not even say that it has intellection. You would be dividing it. It would become duality, intellect, and good. The good has no need of the intellectual principle, which, on the contrary, needs it for attaining it. So in Platonism, remember, you had the various spheres of reality. You had the one, which spawns through self-reflection, this intellectual principle, which in turn spawns the soul world. And so there's, there's those three levels of hypostasis. But the good is the primary level of hypostasis. It's perfect perfection. There, there's no deficiencies. There's no change. It's immutable. It's uh, ineffable. It's timeless. There's no relations. It doesn't have dependencies. Dependencies cause degradation. So that's interesting. Who is God in Platonism? He is the one. Gnostics also talked about this one in the same terminology. We could go look at what I have over there. This is Eugnoso the Blessed. This is one of the Gnostic texts that I read in full for the channel. He who is ineffable, no principle knew him, no authority, no subjection, nor any creature from the foundation of the world except he alone. For he is immortal and eternal, having no birth. For everyone who has birth will perish. He is unbegotten, having no beginning. For everyone who has a beginning has an end. No one rules over him. He has no name, for whoever has a name is the creation of another. He is unnameable. He has no human form, for whoever has human form is the creation of another. And so on and so on. These people were dyed in the wool Platonists, teaching what Plato taught, uh, teaching uh, what uh, Plotinus taught. These Gnostics, before Plotinus even, 
Uh, Plotinus is always bumping up against these Gnostics in his day-to-day -day life, duking it out with them about their conceptions because they were so close to each other, they had to refine their theology by riffing off each other. Ha! Huh. Turning to Augustine. Have I spoken of God or uttered his praise in any worthy way? Nay, I feel that I have done nothing more than desire to speak. And if I have said anything, it is not what I desire to say. How do I know this except for the fact that God is unspeakable? What I have said, if it has been unspeakable, could not have been spoken. And so God is not even to be called unspeakable, because to say even this is to speak of him. Direct, direct phrases coming straight from Plotinus, whose works that Augustine was familiar with. Augustine thought of God in terms of the Platonists. And you see this throughout the Confessions. This is coming from On Christian Doctrine, but he's got pretty famous phrases throughout his Confessions talking about how he came to the knowledge of God, uh, the ineffable God that he has to reach through this direct communication through ascending. Well, we'll get to that a little bit later. And in the Calvinist section, I have various Calvinists quoted. James Dwezel, I have uh, Louis Burkhoff, but I also have John Calvin himself. We'll read John Calvin's quote. Again, whatever is proper to each, I affirm to be incommunicable, because nothing can apply or be transferred to the Son, which is attributed to the Father, as a mark of distinction. I have no objections to adopt the definition of Tutelian, provided it is properly understood, that there is in God a certain arrangement or economy, which makes no change on the unity of essence. So God is indivisible, incommunicable, in John Calvin. This is their idea. This is the one. This is the one of Plato. This is the one of the Gnostics. Augustine and then Calvin as well. Although Calvin doesn't touch quite as often on systematic theology as these other individuals do. He, he's more of a nitty-gritty guy and when he touches on it mostly it's tangential. I think, I think one of the reasons he was first kicked out of Geneva was because he didn't speak very strongly on the doctrine of the Trinity. People assumed he wasn't a Trinitarian. And so that, that's, that's a funny development in history. Moving on to the next category, how does God create? In Platonism, it's a self-reflection or an overpour. In Gnosticism, we see this again, the self-reflection or an overpour or sending out. In, in Gnosticism, you had various emanations from the one, and the farther away the material world could be isolated from God, the better. And so lesser beings would spawn lesser beings, which would spawn lesser beings, which would eventually create the world. In Augustinianism, he appeals to mystery. Ha! Imagine that. And in Calvinism, there's an appeal to mystery. Well, let's, let's go down to Augustine and Calvin on this appeal to mystery. But far be it that thou, creator of the universe, creator of souls and bodies, far be it that thou shouldst in this way know all future things and past, far, far more wonderfully, and in a far more hidden way dost thou know them. Instead of creation, instead of creation, uh, he, he appeals to this inherent knowledge. God doesn't learn through creation. We don't know how God creates in Augustine. James Dwezel, he's speaking for the Calvinists. It should be readily confessed that the exact function of free will in God, who is himself pure act, is beyond the scope of human knowledge. Just as we cannot comprehend God as ipsen esse substance, we cannot comprehend the identity between God as eternal, immutable, pure act, and his will for the world as free and uncoerced. 
Though we discover strong reason for confessing both simplicity and freedom in God, we cannot form an isomorphically adequate notion of how this is the case. In fact, this confession of ignorance is precisely what finds in the Thomas and Reformed traditions. They don't know how God can actualize a world. Remember, God God exercises free will to spawn something that doesn't have to be. They can't get they can't bridge to the chasm between a God of pure actuality and one of uh, interacting with potentiality. And so they appeal to mystery. And it's they're pretty blatant about it. They just they just go out and say it. How does the material world relate to the spiritual? Uh, in Platonism, there's the three level of hypostasis. We talked about that as well. Previously, in Gnosticism, there's a radical dualism, and there's the aeons. The material is corrupt. It seems to be a more simplistic notion. They might have had some conception of the Plato's forms, and that's in Plotinus. That's the second level of hypostasis. The, the intellectual principle is the forms. But Gnosticism, of course, they had the one, and material is more, more dualistic when you're reading them. In Augustinianism, there's three levels of hypostasis, God, spirit, and material. And in Calvinism, there's three levels of hypostasis as well, and the material becomes corrupt. In Augustine, it's interesting reading him, um, good and evil, Good evil is deprivation of the good. Good or evil is the absence of good. But Calvin sees, I think we'll get to this a little bit later, but Calvin sees evil as an active element in nature. There's a little bit of a difference there. Scrolling down to Augustine on the forms of hypostasis, but since he took the form of a servant as that the unchangeable form of God remained, it is clear that which became apparent that the Son was done by the Father and the Son being not apparent, that is, by the invisible Father, with the invisible Son, and the same Son himself was sent to be the visible. Why therefore does he say, Neither I came of myself? This we may now say. It is according to the form of a servant, in the same way as if I said, I judge no man. If therefore he is said to be sent, insofar as he appeared outwardly in bodily creature, who inwardly in his spiritual nature is always hidden from the eyes of mortals, is now easy to understand also of the Holy Spirit, why he too is said to be sent, for in due time certain outward appearance of the creature was wrought, wherein the Holy Spirit might be visibly shown, wherein, when he descended upon the Lord himself in bodily shape as a dove, or when, ten days having passed since his ascension on the day of Pentecost, a sound came suddenly from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and cloven tongues like fire were seen upon them, and it sat upon each of them. This operation, visibly exhibited and presented to mortal eyes, is called the sending of the Holy Spirit. Not that his very substance appeared, in which he himself is also visible and unchangeable, like the Father and the Son, but that the hearts of men, touched by things seen outwardly, might be turned from the manifestation in time of him coming to his hidden eternity as ever present. So in Augustinian theology, the Holy Spirit, the the physical form can manifest, but it's not actually the Holy Spirit. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus's bodily form is not God the one. Remember, the physical can't be divine, and that's why in the hypostatic union, you'll be hard-pressed to get people who understand the theology to say that the human part of Jesus was divine. That's just not the case in the hypostatic union. They need us, the separation. The human part of Jesus cannot be divine. The, the human part of Jesus is just an outward manifestation of an unchangeable principle 
unchangeable, immutable, unrelatable. It just gives us some sort of uh, tangible tangible thing to grasp from the spiritual realm that we have no access to. That's what he's describing here. Bavink, in his Reformed Dogmatics, writes this, Hence, three moments, constituents, constitute the essence of human personality. We use the word moments advisedly in our case, but they are but moments. In God, however, because he is not subject to space and time, to extension or division, these three are not moments, but hypostases, modes of existence of one and the same being. Furthermore, although the three persons do not differ in essence, they are distinct subjects, hypostases or substances, which precisely for that reason bring about within the being of God the complete unfolding of that being. The three, three persons of the Trinity are three hypostases, modes of being. We'll go on to what is salvation. In Platonism, there is a spiritual ascent. And we've talked about this spiritual ascent quite often. Um, what, what we have is God is the one, the ineffable. All things have, have resulted from emanations from that one. And the goal of every good creature is to re-merge with the one, uh, attain spiritual enlightenment through typically meditation, meditational trances. Plotinus writes, therefore, we must ascend again towards the good and desired of every soul. Anyone that has seen this knows what I intend when I say that it is beautiful. Even the desire of it is to be desired as a good. To attain it is for those that will take the upward path, who will set all their forces towards it, who will divest themselves of all that we have put in our descent. So we got to get rid of those elements of us that caused our descent, our changing, our sexual passions, our desire for food. This is that humility uh, in not eating food and not, not uh, drinking that Paul addressed in Colossians. He's dealing with Platonists who want to deprive the body of anything pleasurable so that they could reattain to the one. This is Platonism. In Allogenes, this is a Gnostic. He talks about this this spiritual enlightening, this ascent through introspection, and I withdrew to the vitality as I sought myself, and I joined into it, and I stood, not firmly but silently, and I saw an eternal, intellectual, undivided motion that pertains to all formless powers, which is unlimited by limitation. And when I wanted to stand firmly, I withdrew to the existence, which I found standing and at rest, like an image and a likeness of what is conferred upon me by revelation of the indivisible one and the one who is at rest. Remember this one language. This is language directly from Plato, from Parmenides. In his work, Parmenides, he talks about the one over and over. And this, this one is what Aristotle said that Plato taught. And this is what the Platonists incorporate into their theology as the first principle, the, the primary being. And the Gnostics were Platonists. We read it right here. This is the Platonic ascent. And this ascent is also done by Augustine. In Confessions, we read uh, two ascents, probably one successful ascent, but uh, Augustine always talks about seeing something with his inward eye. This is the Platonic ascent. He, he sought direct revelation from direct contact with God in a hypnotic trance, basically. But in On the Literal Meaning of Genesis, he writes this, but if anyone has a problem about what need there is for the spirits of the departed to get their bodies back in the resurrection, 
If that supreme blessedness can be offered them without their bodies, it is indeed too difficult to question to be completely tied up in this work. Nonetheless, it is not to be doubted in the least that the human mind, when snatched away from the senses of the flesh, and when after death it has been laid the flesh aside and also soared above with all likeliness of bodily things, still cannot see the unchangeable divine substance in a way that the holy angels see it, this might be due to some more hidden cause. Remember in Augustinianism, in Platonism, the material world pulls us down. And so if you can't attain enlightenment, you, you have something pulling you down. That's what he's describing right here. This may be due to some more hidden cause, or the reason may be that there is a ingrained in the soul a kind of natural appetite for administering the body. And as long as it does not have the body at its disposal, it is somehow or other held back by this unsatisfied appetite from pressing on with undivided attention to the highest heaven. We need to ascend to the one. This is Augustine. This is his theology. This is his idea of salvation, re-entering, -re reuniting with the one. Now, Calvin here takes a more biblical stance. Calvin describes the new earth and the restoration of the material world. So he departs from Augustine at this point and biblically argues that there is a physical resurrection. Uh, kudos to John Calvin for this breaking with Augustine. I'm going to skip forward in this quote. God shall be exalted for all creatures shall be renewed in order to amplify it and to render it illustrious. But he means not that all creatures shall be partakers of the same glory with the sons of God, but that they, according to their nature, shall be part participators in a better condition. For God will restore to a perfect state the world now fallen together with mankind. But what that perfection will be as to the beasts, as well as the plants and metals, is not, I mean, nor right in us to inquire more curiously. For the chief effect of corruption is decay. And so he believes in an actual physical resurrection and a physical eternal life. So here is what I think is the biggest departure of Calvin from normal Platonistic Christianity, is the restoration of the physical world. We'll touch on both of these. How does one become saved and who is saved? Uh, you have to, in Platonism, you have to tap into the spiritual world and those who are contemplative. The philosophers, as Plato writes, can reach the higher things. In Gnosticism, there's uh, Gnostic enlightening, and the people who are embedded with the Gnostic spark are the ones who can attain to salvation. In Augustinianism, uh, the, he surplants the divine spark with Jesus. Jesus is that critical element that allows uh, us to transcend back to the one. Jesus is the bridge. <laughs> that That's what Augustinianism added to Platonism. Jesus is that divine spark. And it's the eternally elect, people who have been eternally elect by God for this purpose. It's not just everyone. In Calvinism, there's a monogeristic internal illumination. There's uh, God quickening your soul, as, as the Calvinists might, might poetically put it. There's a God giving you that divine spark. Oh, you don't understand that because you're a reprobate. You don't have, uh, you don't have the spirit. You, you, don't, you aren't uh, the enlightened, the elect. Of course, in Calvinism, they have the eternally elect as well. We're going to scroll down to Augustinianism and Calvinism to look at those. Here's Augustine. And that in this faith it might advance the more confidently towards the truth, the truth itself, God, God's Son, assuming humanity without destroying his divinity, established and founded this faith, 
that there might be a way for man to man's God through a God-man. For it is this mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. For it is as man that he is a mediator and the way. Since if the way lies between him who goes and the place where he goes, there is hope of his reaching it. But if there be no way, or if he know not where it is, what boots it to know whether he should go? Now, the only way that is infallibly secured against all mistakes is when the very same person is at once God and man, God our end, man our way. Jesus creates the bridge. Je Jesus gulfs the, the chasm so man can attain to the one. In John Calvin, he writes this, Besides, there is this a special call for which the most part God bestows on believers only, when by the internal illumination of the Spirit, he causes the word preached to take a deep root in their hearts. Internal illumination. This is Gnostic enlightening. This is Platonic enlightening. Uh, this is the divine spark in Gnosticism. John Calvin teaches it. He teaches it. Then who is elect? John Calvin actually quotes Augustine on this. John Calvin quotes Augustine all the time, most often favorably. Although he wasn't a, quite a big fan of the spiritualization that Augustine did on various texts of the Bible, he did defer to his reading quite often. And he agrees a lot with what Augustine says. And this is one example. This cavil I prefer refuting in the words of Augustine rather than my own, if all that the apostle meant is that it is not alone of him that wills or him that runs unless the Lord be present in mercy, we may retort and hold the converse that it is not of mercy alone, unless willing and running he be present. But if this is manifestly impious, let us have no doubt that the apostle attributes all to the mercy of the Lord and leaves nothing for our wills or exertions. See, who is elect? Those who are eternally elect. How? What does it mean to be elect? You got that internal enlightening. You have the Gnostic enlightening. We'll quickly cover this. What is evil and the source of evil? Evil in Platonism is privation of the good. And we see that in Gnosticism, it is the material world, it's change. In Augustinianism, it's privation of the good, because Augustine was an, a Platonist. In Calvinism, there's hereditary corruption or compelling force. Evil is an active element. It's not just depri deprivation of the good. And so what is the source of evil acts in Platonism? It's our animal nature. It's our soulish nature. It's, it comes from us being material beings. The material world, of course, in Gnosticism, in Augustinianism, it's our fallen nature. The fall creates this, and that is carried on by John Calvin. We're going to kind of skip uh, their proof text that we have them saying these things. Predestination in Platonism, events are predestined. God is eternal, outside of time. Th things are in Gnosticism, events are predestined. In Augustinianism, events are predestined. And in Calvinism, events are predestined. Let's go down and read some of these. Plotinus, in the dramas of human art, the poet provides the words, but the actors add their own quality, good or bad, for they have more to do than merely repeat the author's words. In the truer drama, which dramatic genius imitates in its degree, the soul displays itself in a part assigned by the creator to the piece. And as the actors of our stage get their masks and their costumes, robes or state or rags, so a soul is allotted its fortunes. 
It is not as haphazard, but always under a reason. It adapts itself to fortunes, assigned to it, attunes itself, arranges itself rightly to the drama, to the whole principle of the piece, then it speaks out its business, exhibiting at the same time all that a soul can express within its own quality as a singer of a song. And so we are all actors in a play, and this divine play is set for us. Augustine in the City of God, book five, he talks about, uh, don't call our beliefs fate. Yes, yes, it operates just like fate, but don't call it fate. He says this, but that all things come to pass by fate, we do not say. Nay, we affirm that nothing comes to pass by fate, for we demonstrate that the name fate, as is wont to be used by those who speak of fate, meaning thereby the position of the stars at the time of each one's corruption or birth, is an unmeaning word, for astrology itself is a delusion. So he condemns astrology, bad astrology, but he assigns it to God. But in order of causes in which its highest efficiency is attributed to will of God, we neither deny nor do we designate it by the name fate. We call it something different. God predestines everything. But Vink writes, Entirely mistaken, therefore, is the notion that the counsel of God in general and the decree of reprobation in particular is a single naked decision of the divine will concerning someone's eternal destiny it is wrong to conceive the decree as if it determined only a person's end and coerced him or her in that direction regardless of what they did. The decree is an unconceivably rich as reality itself. It is, in fact, the fountained head of all reality. It encompasses in a single conception the end as well as the ways leading to it. The goal along with the means of reaching it is not a transcendent power randomly intervening now and then from above impelling things towards their appointed end. On the contrary, it is a divine implement, eternal idea that displays its fullness in the forms of space and time and successively in several dimensions unfolds before a limited field of vision that which is the one in the mind of God. So what he's saying is the predestination concept is not God wants me to go somewhere on Tuesday. God controls my very thoughts leading up to that, all the small details in that. God's just not a meta controller. He controls even the finer details to his uh, uh, eternal plans. This is Calvinist idea of Platonism. There's predestination in all these views. Now we'll talk quickly about the nature of man. In Platonism, we are tripartite. There's a dichotomy with extension. In Gnosticism, there, you're either find trichotomies or dichotomy in, in the human nature, or three-part or two-part. In Augustinianism, we are two-part. And in Calvinism, we're two-part or one-part depending. Let's, let's scroll down to see what Augustine and Calvin say on this. This is indeed true, that the soul is not the whole of man, but the better part of man. The body is not the whole, but the inferior part of man. And that then, when both are joined, they receive the name of man. Calvin repeats this idea. Moreover, there can be no question that man consists of a body and a soul, meaning by soul and immortal through created essence, which is his nobler part. Sometimes he is called a spirit, but through these two terms, while they're in use together in their different meanings, still, when spirit is used by itself is equivalent to a soul, as when Solomon, speaking to death, says that the spirit returns to God who gave it. And so man has a two-part nature. All right, so that's a basic overview of Platonism, Gnosticism, Augustinianism, and Calvinism. They have a lot of similarities. There are some differences. Remember, in Plato, you have the ascension to the divine. You have the three hypostases. In Gnosticism, it's more dualistic. There's the evil world, and there's God who must be, must be uh, kept away. 
God must be excluded from this uh, physical world, even by departing uh, so from aeons. Aeons spawn different aeons and different aeons, different creator beings to keep God wholly pure. In Plato, the ideal forms do that. There's the overflowing of the one, which creates the ideal, which spawns the soul, which spawns the world. And that way, God is protected. But in all these systems, God is the one. God is uh, this incomprehensible, uncreated, infinite being outside space and time, ineffable. Uh, there's, there's no limitations. You can't ascribe any predicates to it. God doesn't learn things, as we read in uh, Augustine. He doesn't have... The discursive knowledge, you could kind of see that what, what he's talking about there. They all buy into this Platonic notion of who God is. God is the one. God is the one of Plato. That's who they're saying. And what is salvation? <laughs> Calvin is our, our uh, lone, uh, lone objector here who gets the biblical case right. Our salvation is entrance into an eternal kingdom, an earthly kingdom through resurrection. But in Platonism, in Gnosticism, and in Augustinianism, it's escape from the world, escape from the material. It's this uh, trying to reunite with the one where we don't see that in Calvin. In Calvin, of course, evil is an active element itself. There's uh, our inherent original sin that we get through being the offspring of Adam, and that compels us, forces us to do evil. Whereas in Augustine's mind, evil is the privation of the good. So in these ways, in these ways, they're they're all they're all fatalists too. They're all fatalists. If if you hold a conception of God being outside of time, eternal, unchangeable, uh, perfectly simple, no no attributes, no attributes, you can't give them predicates, anything like that, you must hold to some form of fatalism if you want to remain consistent and all these people were in fact fatalists i didn't have a text right now for the gnostics but there's an entire book that i have on the gnostic sense of fatalism and i think they uh, augustine criticizes those who ascribe things to the stars to how the stars influence people but i think the gnostics were very heavily influenced as the book argues in predestination based on star patterns that's, that's what they were into. And Augustine condemns that type of fatalism. His fatalism flows straight from the mind of God. That's the fatalism of Augustine. Anyways, I hope this was helpful. I'll try to post a link to this document on the YouTube, on, on uh, our uh, podcast uh, description so that everyone can have a copy of it. I still need to update certain sections and find more quotes and more sources. But it's a pretty good quick summary of these various beliefs. So when people say things like, how is Calvinism like Gnosticism? There's something right there. It's so funny. It's so funny. They do that. And they say, I say, Calvinism is Gnosticism. They're like, what do they believe in common? How are How is one like the other? You post them this spreadsheet and one guy, he just says, he just called me a nerd. He's just like, you're a nerd. And then he didn't talk to me anymore because, uh, because I thoroughly documented how they were similar, what types of beliefs that they do share, which doesn't show heritage. It doesn't show how one spawns from another. But if you look at the history of Platonism, Platonism became mainstream. Platonism became the, the metropolitan religion. And that's what Gnosticism grew up in before even Augustinian Christianity came on the scene. Gnosticism was already heavily Platonized Christianity. And 
Augustine brought his own form of Platonism into it, followed by Calvin. Calvin actually did some de-Platonization of Christianity in his works, but fundamentally it's Platonist. Anyways, questions or comments, put that down below. Thank you for listening.